cross where he breathed his last breath and he committed his spirit to the Father. Because it was about to be the Sabbath, the religious elite did not want the body of Christ to remain on the cross. And so the soldiers took it down after they determined that he was in fact literally dead. Not sure where his body went when it came down from the cross, but we know that a man named Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for his body. He was granted permission to take the body of Christ to a tomb that he had prepared, his own tomb. It was a brand new tomb in which he would lay the body of his Lord and his Savior there. You see, Joseph was an undercover disciple, a part of the Sanhedrin. He was familiar with Pilate and Pilate with him, and as a result of that friendship and that relationship, he conceded to give Joseph the body of Christ, and he promptly took it to the burial site where he was met by Nicodemus, who was also an undercover disciple of Christ who brought the ointment in which they would then anoint the body of Christ, wrap it as it's supposed to be wrapped, place it in that tomb that Friday evening, and the stone was rolled in front of the entrance. Soldiers were placed to guard the tomb, and then Saturday began. I can't imagine what it was like for those disciples on that Saturday after the the witness of the crucifixion of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that Mary and Martha and some of the other women were there. We know that also John was there, one of the beloved disciples of Christ, one of the inner 12. I presume to think that probably more than likely others were also there because we know that Thomas is very familiar in the scripture we're going to be reading in a moment as to the how abouts of the crucifixion of Christ. And so there was a lot of silence on that Saturday, and it must have been and must have seemed like for the disciples an eternity for those 24 hours in which there was nothing. They heard nothing. They knew nothing. They were not knowing what to expect, and there was a lot of confusion, a lot of anxiety, a lot of expectation. And so the disciples for that whole Saturday were were sort of perplexed as to what was about to happen. They were hiding in a room in fear of their lives. That's Sunday morning, though. The first day of the week, we learn that Mary, in the Gospel of John, and in the other Gospels, went with some women to finish what they had started by caring for the body of Christ. You see, they couldn't complete the task because it was the Sabbath, and so they went to finish what they had started. John tells us in his account wherein Mary walked up to that tomb, it was just before the sun was up. It was daybreak. And I can imagine, I'm not sure exactly when, but as Mary more than likely walked through that garden and came up to that place where the body of Christ was laying, she knew that it was there. The sun maybe just peeked out just enough for her to see the entrance of the tomb and the stone that had been rolled away. As she walks up to that, perplexed, uncertain as to what she would find, she more than likely because of a sunbeam lighting its way into the tomb, she didn't go in, noticed that the body of Christ was not there. I can't imagine the emotions of that moment for this lady whom Christ had saved, one who had become an integral part of his ministry and his following as a female disciple, but she did what any disciple would have done. She said, I've got to go find the other disciples. 
She was aware to their hideout. They, they were hiding out. She knew where they were, so she ran, I think. I can imagine how swiftly or quickly she must have run. She probably more than likely didn't want to draw a lot of attention to herself, but she wanted to convey the news as quickly as possible to the beloved disciples of Christ who were in waiting, more than likely, for this news. She knocks on the door. They unbolt the door. They let her in, and she tells them of what she has discovered The body of Christ is gone. He's not there. The disciples pretty much act like you and I would think they were act. They were were incredibly excited. And we know that Simon Peter and John, the beloved disciple of Christ, have a foot race to the burial site. We don't know why John beat Simon Peter there. Maybe he was younger. Maybe he was a runner in high school. I don't know. But he got there quicker. But John was not about to go in alone. He stood at the entrance of the tomb waiting for Simon to get there or for something else. We're not sure why, but he stood there just perplexed, amazed, astonished. Simon Peter gets there as quick as he can, knocks John out of the way, through the door. He doesn't hesitate. And according to John, we learn that Simon Peter went into the room and that tomb, he sees them, this, this wrap that was around the body of Christ, it's shuffled a little bit, there's not a body there, and he sees that the linen that was wrapped around the face of Christ is neatly folded and placed to the side. And then John walks in. And the two disciples stand there witnessing the unbelievable. The passage tells us that John believed that Christ had been raised from the dead, that he was alive. But Simon Peter is not quite convinced, for he's a little more difficult than John. John tells us that the two leave the tomb and they go home. And then he tells us that Mary gets there. We're not sure if she gets there exactly behind the disciples or after they have left, but Mary comes to the place of the tomb that she had discovered that that her Lord and her Savior was gone. He was missing, and she's there, and she's weeping, and she's crying, and she's beside herself. She's emotions that are just pouring out, and tears are just falling. And then a man approaches her whom she mistakes as a gardener. She's seen the two angels over here in white, But there's a man standing there, and she mistakes him as the gardener. The man simply addresses her. He said, woman, why are you weeping? She said, what have you done with my Savior? Where is his body? He's not in the tomb. Tell me so I can attend to him. And he says one word. He speaks her name. He says, Mary, no one has ever said her name like Jesus. If you've heard him call your name, you know what I'm talking about. And all of a sudden, all of these emotions flood her heart and her mind and her soul. And she knows that it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Can you imagine what she was thinking at that moment? Her tears are now turning to sorrow. Her sadness turning to joy. And she is sitting there in this, this moment for just a second trying to wrestle with her emotions and what to say. And Jesus says to her, woman, don't cling to me. I'm not quite ready for you to do this. I have a mission I want you to carry out. Go to the disciples and tell them that I have gone up from the dead. I am alive. And tell them what we've talked about. Again, she's same journey she just took just a little while ago from the tomb to where the men were hiding. Second time. And uh, I, I can't imagine... As she bursts through that door and tells the men again for the second, you're not going to believe this. 
Last time he wasn't there, this time I was there, and I saw him, I spoke to him, he called me by my name, and he told me to tell you that he was alive and that he's not dead. Do they believe it? I think they want to believe it, but it's too good to be true. They hesitate, and they stall. And that's where I want to pick up the text this morning, Luke in, Luke, in Luke's gospel last week on the cross, but today we're going to look at John. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. For last week he moves in Luke from the cross. Today, John, out from the grave. And it's here we learn the struggle of the disciples. They were, they were experiencing this, this incredible opportunity that they had not possibly imagined. And, and they had heard reports. I mean, by now they, they've heard reports. I mean, they know that... that uh, that, that Mary has come with a report. They have heard that Simon Peter by now has been visited by Jesus himself in a one-on-one. They have heard the two guys who, uh, who were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus kind of walks up alongside them and they travel together and he opens their minds and their hearts with all kinds of insight in regard to the Messiah and to the Savior and to this Christ that they're lamenting over their loss. And they finally, when they're sitting down to eat, they ask him to pray and when he does... He disappears. And they come back to where the disciples were and say, you're not going to believe this, guys. We're on the road to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, we didn't know it, but it was Jesus. We didn't recognize it until he prayed. And when we recognized him, he disappeared. He's alive. Imagine the anxiety and, and the uncertainty and the, the, the fear and the apprehension that the disciples were experiencing in regard to this news that the, their Messiah, their Savior, their Lord had been resurrected from the dead. They didn't know how to act. They didn't know what was next. They didn't know what to expect. And so they were completely unsure. And we see in verse 19 how they struggled with that uncertainty. He said, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them. And he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, sighed. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus then said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's in this passage that I find a little bit perplexing in that the disciples are not quite sure how to act or what to do. And I got to thinking, how does this relate to us in our modern day life? You know, I think there are times and there are moments in our lives when we, like the disciples, are faced with these these unexplainable, inexplicable, undeniable moments in our lives where we find ourselves not knowing how to react. We don't know exactly what to do. And, and we, we struggle with these same anxiety aspects in our lives, especially in regard to Christ and our faith and how to follow him. And so it's here this morning that I want to look at five very quick things in this text. We're going to look at another one. Don't get anxious. We'll, we'll be finished, but we'll go to number two. This is first point number one. I want us to see how we, through this, can strengthen our confidence when we, like the disciples, find ourselves in this kind of perplexing place. 
For I'm convinced that if you live any length of your life, there's going to come a time in your life when you're going to face with the unexplainable, the inexplicable, the things that are difficult to comprehend. You're going to have a moment of insecurity, uncertainty, and anxiety like the disciples. How do we handle those moments with confidence? I think, first of all, it's important that we respond with patience. For the disciples responded with patience. Now, I know the passage says that they had their doors locked, and, and it was the evening of that day. That was Sunday evening. That's why we have church on Sunday night. Disciples did. And so on Sunday evening, they were together up in their room, and they had their doors locked. But notice it says they were in fear. They were afraid. They were filled with anxiety. And, and there's a lot of criticism upon the disciples at this point. But, but I, I have to say kudos to these guys because at least they were together in an upper room. They were, there were 10 of them together, locked tightly. Sure, they were afraid for their lives, but they were, they were responding the best they knew how. Which I'm convinced is a, a really great way to respond to the situation, the circumstance, when you don't know what to do. And that is just to lock yourself away in a place, in a hideout, and wait on God. For how many times have we, in times of anxiety and in moments of pressure and stress, we have taken matters into our own hands and we have stepped outside of the will of God and done things that God never intended and he never purposed for our lives. We're waiting on God, and we must wait on God because God was actively working. They just couldn't see him. They didn't know what he was doing, but they knew that there was something going on, and so they were together in the upper room. But notice, not only did they respond with patience, but there was a reflection then on the presence of God. They all of a sudden were aware that he was there, and we must, like them, reflect on his presence. He says, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he was among them. He was in their presence. I got to thinking about that. There, there's no indication of time here. So we really don't know how long he was there before they, they didn't recognize him. I and mean, he had to speak before they recognized him. We have no, no record of anyone that said, hey, Jesus, it's you. You're here. He had to speak first, didn't he, according to the text. And here these disciples are locked away in this upper room, and all of a sudden, Poof, Christ appears out of nowhere. Now, John tells us that the door was locked, so he didn't come through the front door. I'm convinced that the shutters were also drawn, and they were locked. And so the only way he could appear is just appear. How long did he stand in their midst until they realized that it was him and that he was there? I mean, they had heard the reports for that he was alive and that he was in the room, and they didn't, were not even aware of it. And I think there are times when we have anxieties and stresses and preoccupations and difficulties and things in our lives, and how we, like them, sometimes fail to recognize and realize that Jesus Christ is with us the whole time. I mean, we have a saying that says, the light, at, the light is at the end of the tunnel. Ever use that to help encourage somebody? That's a lie. It really is. Let me tell you why. Jesus said, I am the light. And if he's the light, he's not at the end of the tunnel. He's in the tunnel with you. There's never a moment, never a time in your life when he is not present among you, regardless of what you're feeling or sensing or questioning or worrying about, whatever fuels your anxiety. Jesus is in your midst. He is present. I mean, why do we call ourselves Emmanuel? It means what? God with us. He is among us, and he is alive. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, as you're walking with him and working for him and living for him, he is with you. So always, when you're, you find yourself in those difficult times, 
Reflect on the presence of his reality among you. Thirdly, rest in his peace. Interesting that this became one of the favorite sayings of the early church. Jesus speaks to them and he says, peace be with you. Isn't that phenomenal? He knew exactly what they were sensing and feeling in their heart. They were perplexed and filled with anxiety. And he's trying to reassure them now and and reconstruct their faith. And he speaks into their life and he speaks words of peace. I mean, he could have said, you goober heads, why didn't you believe the report? I told you before, many, many, many times there was a failure to communicate. You should have reminded yourselves that I told you that I was going to be led to Jerusalem. I was going to be murdered. I would be put in a grave, but I would rise again. I told you many, many times. You should have remembered. But he didn't speak words of rebuke or condemnation. He simply spoke words of reassurance and encouragement, words to lift them up. And he said, peace. Now, whenever you're in a troubled time, where do you go? To the words in the word. Because when we open the word, isn't it amazing how his word brings peace, builds our confidence, and increases our faith, and sets us on a course where our struggle comes to an end because we put our faith in him? Well, after they received this word from Jesus, a word of peace, notice that he tries to reinforce what he has just said by showing them his hands and his feet and his side. And and the Bible says there was a time of rejoicing, a time of rejoicing. Patty and I were talking about that coming down here today. How do you suppose they rejoiced? I don't know if you've seen the Wichita Eagle today, but I want to say, go shocks. Go shocks. But I saw the, the front page. It, it's, it's our beloved coach. Right? I mean, how'd you like that, you know, for all of Wichita to see? Hope you don't have anything in your teeth. You didn't forget to floss or something. I want to think that when, when, when all of a sudden Christ was in the room and he said, peace be with you, and all of a sudden they were flooded with peace, man, there were high fives. Yeah! Better than any Wichita game. I know that's hard for you to believe. Because you were on the edge of your seat just like I was. Going, I hope they don't blow a 20-point lead. God, help them. What did you do that for? (laughs) But here, it was time of rejoicing. The disciples were excited. And they reconnected with their purpose because Jesus then speaks into their rejoicing. He says to them, notice, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. What was he doing here? He was bringing them back to the purpose for which they were called. they gotten off focus. They have lost track. They were not doing what he had called them to do. We've talked about this for several weeks, for several months now. He came not only to redeem a lost world, but he also came to recruit disciples who would carry on his ministry when he was ascended into heaven. And so that's what they were called and equipped and encouraged and empowered to do, is to carry on the ministry. And here these disciples were like cowards, filled with fear, in an upper room, locked in the four corners of this home, waiting for something. Sounds like the church today. I said, it sounds like the church today. The gospel is not intended for the four walls of the... Okay, it's four, but it's, it's kind of a pie-shaped four. The gospel is intended not to be locked up in here, but it's intended to go out there. 
And they were in an upper room with their doors locked, holding on to this powerful message called the gospel, the good news of Jesus that he had called, empowered, equipped them to to go and share, and they were afraid. There were some pretty scary people in here Saturday morning at the pancake feed. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. But this is where we church. This is our community. We should never be afraid of anyone in this community or anyone that God brings to our church. The church, I think, today is so filled with fear that they're not accomplishing, fulfilling the mission that we've been called to do. They reconnected with the purpose that he had for their lives. And then lastly, he gave them an incredible power that they could rely upon. He breathed on them the Holy Spirit. I know this is not Acts, and I know the promise of the Holy Spirit, and I know some of you who are theologians out here, you pretend like you are like me. I'm not really a theologian. I'm just a pastor. I spoke last, Tuesday, uh, last Wednesday at Midwestern, and, and I felt very intimidated by all the docs who were in that room in there. It's a scary place to preach. But here we have Jesus breathing on them. Why? He's anointing them with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's similar to an Old Testament anointing. It's an anointing. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit upon a man or a person for the equipping of a specific task. It's not the anointing and the filling that comes in Acts. It's sort of a precursor. It's a, it's a, a prelim of what they're going to need much later. But Jesus knows that these men have been operating in and on their own power, and that's not been enough. And he reminds us time and time again that when we lack confidence, we often lack confidence because we are relying upon our own strength, our own power, rather than relying on him. And I've talked to several people who seem to indicate that our Christianity is a codependency thing, that we ought to be stronger than that. And I tell you, no. Because anytime we grab the bull by the horns and we take the driver's seat and we take the steering wheel and we try to operate our own lives and run it and steer it and do it ourselves, there's disaster every time. Because without his enablement, without his equipping, without his empowerment, there's no way in the world that we can walk the walk and live the life and fulfill the purpose for which we've been created. The disciples needed the Holy Spirit at this point. And you and I need him every day. And the moment we place our faith and trust in Jesus and accept him as our Savior and Lord, we are endowed with a beautiful gift of the presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's not a second blessing. And once we have him, we always have him. And he's always readily, readily available. The moment we want to tap into him and rely upon him and lean on him, he's there. And so here we have this uncertainty. And Jesus comes to instill confidence in his disciples, as he does us. But I want us then to look at one man's struggle with unbelief. For there was one man who was not present. Let's look at the text in verse 24. Let's read about him. His name is Thomas. Now, before we do, let me set it up for just a second. I know there are a lot of people that really are down on Thomas. Uh, I'm not down on him because I named our eldest son, Matthew Thomas Boswell. The young man, actually, he's my son too. He's not just Patty's, he's our son. Just to clear that up in case anybody didn't know anything. We've been happily married for 35 plus years. And we have three children together. And Matthew Thomas Boswell, Thomas was an incredible disciple. I know he, he had a little bit of problem here in this particular point. But if you remember earlier on in John, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem, and the disciples question, is that, is that a good thing? Are you sure you want to do that? Remember, they tried to crucify you or kill you there. They wanted to stone you. Remember, they, they wanted to do you in. 
And Thomas said, if we're going to go to Jerusalem, man, I'm ready to die for you. That's what he said. And Jesus didn't rebuke him like he did Simon Peter. This man was an incredible man of faith. And so Thomas is struggling at this point. Like many are struggling today with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And they've got to see it to believe it. They've got to feel it to believe it. And we have many believers today who are just like that in the church. I've got to see it to believe it, to feel it, to believe it. And unless I see it and feel it and experience it, it's not reality. But that isn't faith. So Thomas was struggling with faith. And notice how he struggles with it in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin. He had a twin brother. Not sure they're identical or not, but he wants to make sure that he clearly tells us exactly who this man is, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. He was absent the first time. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You ever heard that before? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, here's the great saying, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas and he says, put your finger here and see my hand. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas then answered him and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus then says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He was struggling with his personal conviction about the reality of the resurrection of Christ. And I don't know if you've awakened in the middle of the night in a pool of your own sweat, wondering if this whole Jesus thing is real. But I think most of us have probably had that whispered in our ear at one time or another. And Thomas is having one of those moments at this time. And notice how he builds this conviction, how this conviction is stirred up in his heart and his life. As we take a look at the five points I want us to look at, and we're going to close, notice, how do I support my conviction in the resurrection of Jesus? First of all, receive the testimony of others. If you take a look at the text, you'll notice that Thomas had heard the testimony, not just of Mary, not just of Simon Peter, not just probably of John who said, I believe I was there with you, that he had, he had been raised from the dead, not just the two on the road to Emmaus, not just the ten who had been visited by Christ in the upper room. And imagine there's, there's a whole slew of witnesses that is more than enough in a court of law to, to justify his belief. And yet he still says, I can. He's not trusting in the testimony. Well, I'm here to tell you that that there's a reason why we're saved today. And it's because of the personal testimony that we heard from someone who said, you know, there was a moment in time in my life where all of a sudden I became aware of my own sinful condition. I was enlightened to the Jesus who died on the cross for my sin. Then God placed his faith in me to trust in him as my savior. And then I turned from myself and turned from my sin and trusted in him as my savior and my Lord. And now I'm here to tell you, he's alive. He's alive because he lives in me. He's alive because he lives through me. That is a testimony within itself. And you today have a testimony. We sang about that testimony. 
the testimony of the time and the place where you recognized that you were lost and you needed Jesus and you placed your faith and trust in him and he entered into your heart and your life and he changed everything about you. And he changed your sorrow into joy, your sadness into peace, and he brought joy immeasurable and a hope that transcends the grave for those who place their faith and trust in him. And so we have a testimony. And we must receive that testimony, the testimony of others, that God is actively working in the world that we live in. But there's also then some requirements here that I think we need to resist. We need to resist the tangible requirements. I mean, if you take a look at the narrative here, you see that Thomas, what he's doing is Thomas is asking, say, guys, I want to put my finger here. I want to put my hand here. I want to put my fingers down on his feet. I want to see it. He's putting requirements on his faith. And as I've already mentioned, I think there are times when we're like that too. Lord, I want to believe, but help thou my unbelief. I want to see it. I want to feel it. I know you're out there, but until you work, I'm not going to trust you. What What does the Bible say faith is? Faith is what? The substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Hope for, not seen. Wow. You hoped to get here this morning, the car you drove, and you didn't see yourself arriving until you got here, and yet you trusted that vehicle that you were riding in, and you probably passed people at 50 to 60 miles an hour, and you put your trust in them. And yet we have a hard time trusting Jesus until we see it, until we feel it, until he does it. Wow. But notice, thirdly, that he remained open and receptive. He remained open and receptive. I want you to notice something. Don't overlook it. How long did he wait in the upper room with the guys? How long? Anybody know? Eight days. Now, when you put God to the test like that and you say, Lord, I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. I'm not going to trust it until I know it, until you do it. When you put those kind of requirements on God... Be prepared to wait, okay? And you're going to get frustrated when you have to wait. But he's going to make you wait because, you see, he's not a machine that you just put a quarter in and bang and you get your stuff. And and you put tangibles on him. I need to to do this before I believe it. You're going to have to wait a long time. And and Thomas waited eight days. So That's an eternity. The other disciples, ten of them were in the room and they saw Jesus And the others, and Thomas is probably in the room going, when is it my turn? When is it my turn? You know? I watched some of the guys on the bench last night when they were playing for WSU, and you could see they're like, I want to play coach. I want to play coach. I want to play coach. When is it my turn? When is it his turn? Eight days. Thomas stayed there. I'm convinced he didn't leave. They probably had to bring a porta potty in for him, and they brought his meals to him. Meals on wheels. He wasn't going to leave because he was afraid that he would miss the return of Christ. And they knew that he more than likely would come again. Eight days later, remain open and receptive while you wait on God. I'm convinced there's a lot of people who miss God simply because they're like this. I'm not open to you anymore, God. If you don't work the way I want and when I want, and we build these barriers up, these walls... 
anticipating, expecting God to do it when we want it, the way we want it, and in the time frame we want it. And I think sometimes God sits on his throne up there and goes, <laughs> just let him wait a while. Waiting's a good thing for my children. Because there's nothing worse than a spoiled brat in a grocery store or in a line wanting something that their mama ain't going to give them. Remain open and receptive. Fourthly, reach for divine understanding. Jesus shows up, and what does he do? All right, Thomas. Go ahead. Here. Go for it. We're not told if he really touched Jesus at all. Really. But that was enough proof. He recognized that it was Jesus. Jesus came to where he was, came before him, revealed himself to him, and said, here I am. I am the divine. I am the God. I am the Christ. I am. You see, he recognized he was in the presence of God because of divine understanding and divine revelation. I think there are times when we, we, when we, we know that we're in the dark and we don't know what is the truth and what is reality versus fiction. And so we need to just come to him and say, all right, Lord Jesus, open my mind, open my heart, speak into my life, show me the way, reveal to me what I need to know in order to make it, in order to believe, in order to have faith. And then lastly, notice his personal confession. What did he confess? My Lord and my God. He's personal. You see, Thomas had already placed his faith and trust in Jesus as his Messiah, as his Savior, when he was called as a disciple, and then he was called on the inner circle to be one of the twelve. And so what he's doing here is he's simply renewing his faith. He's once again coming to that place and that point in his life where he recognizes that Jesus is not just the Savior, but he is his Savior. He is not just the Lord, but he is his Lord. And I think there are times in each and every one of our lives where our confession and our commitment needs to be renewed. Because we've not been living in the realms of faith. We've been living in the realms of, of self and carnality and ways of the world are demanding that we see it and feel it and touch it and know it before we trust it. And so we venture out, out here all on our own and there are times we need, to, we need to be revived. There are times our confession needs to be renewed. There are times like the prodigal where we need to just admit that we're where we are because of our own doing. And we need to come back to that original commitment, that, that, that time and that moment when we place our faith and trust in Jesus. And we committed to follow him. And we renew our confession. And we ask for personal revival and to be restored back into our faith. So as we close, let me ask you this morning, is that you today? You've wandered away from the faith. Maybe you've lived the life of a prodigal. You've taken all of your inheritance and you've gone away from the Father and you've sold it, you've squandered on things of the world, 
And now in, in this anxiety, in this confusion, in this uncertainty, this lack of confidence, this conviction that's gone by the wayside, you need to return back to the Father and renew your personal confession and commitment to him. I can't think of a better day than to do that than today. Easter Sunday morning, the first day of the week that we celebrate and gather together on the Lord's Day to honor him, for he is not dead, he is risen. Maybe that's your decision today. Maybe you've not wandered that far off, but maybe there's an insecurity and uncertainty and anxiety in your life that's causing you to sort of waffle in your faith and you're not quite living in the confidence and with the conviction that you necessarily need because of whatever it is that's invaded your life and brought you to your knees. And I'm here to tell you, maybe you just need to give it over to him. Just give it over to him. And say, here it is, Lord. Resurrect my faith. Renew my commitment through my confession. As I confess you today, you are my Lord. You are Lord in my life, Lord in my circumstance, Lord in my situation. You are Lord of all, and I trust you as Lord. And I will put these principles into effect until you invade my life, invade my circumstance, invade my situation, and show yourself to me. Or maybe you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus today. And for the very first time, you want to say, I need this Jesus that we've worshipped today. I've never made this kind of personal confession where I have invited Jesus Christ into my heart. I've trusted him with my life and committed to follow him as my Lord. Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.